from the city of brotherly love. This is Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. You just arrived to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your rock star wannabe host, David Strausser, and this is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete global chaos. As always, this episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsor at SAP Global Platinum Partner, Sador. If your business is ready to move off of QuickBooks or some other antiquated solution like Maz90, even green screen, well, give us a rig. We'll be able to help your business automate your business processes and take that next step to break through anything that is a barrier preventing growth. So again, go to Sador.com or reach out to me directly. We'll be able to hook you up. Now let's get back to today's episode. Today's guest is a venture capitalist. Yes, a venture capitalist, if you can believe it. And no, they are not evil. We'll discuss that in today's episode. But our guest today specializes in getting your product to market. So who do we have today? Bocardia. Bocardia is a thought leader within the GTM go-to-market landscape, being a sales coach at the Harvard Business School, Revenue.FYI, and Scaling2100.com. He was an early employee at Hootsuite, starting as a sales rep, pre-revenue, leading multiple GTM teams throughout its growth to 150 million plus ARR, which stands for annual recurring revenue, employees, and 300 million in funding. So hey, without further delay, let's bring Bokar right on in here. Business strategy. Bokar, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became Shark Bait. <laughs> hey, David. Thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. I'm glad that you came on the show. So first question, we ask everybody right out of the gate, kind of a tradition here on the show, is what's your background? What's your experience? How'd you get to do what you're doing? Basically, in a nutshell, tell us what makes Bokar Bokar. Is that a philosophical question? Uh, let me let me just touch on <laughs> So I'm uh, I'm a managing director at uh, Form Ventures today, so we're an early stage fund. But my background is actually a little interesting in that I um, started my my background is actually technical, so that's what I studied at university. I did computing science and realized I did not want to be a software developer, but I did want to be in tech. <laughs> so. I was lucky enough to um, join a company very early stage that ended up being uh, pretty successful called Hootsuite. Um, I was um, one of the first sales. Yeah, Unicorn based out of Canada, um, social media marketing um, company that's... Oh, you're being sarcastic. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I re- I, re- I started during the days when I had to convince people that social media wasn't a fad and it was going to be a thing, just to kind of give you guys a sense. Um, so I was employee, I think eight or nine there, sit at a company for about eight years. And my focus, it wasn't on purpose at first, but it was, was usually to work on our first, um, our initial verticals. Anytime we're launching into new markets, new verticals, I would kind of take care of the early um, customer acquisition motion so that 
zero to one million AR phase and then figuring out how to get from one to ten million dollars AR. Um, did that quite a bit of times at the at the company there. Um, after I left Hootsuite, I was an operator again um, at uh, a couple startups and I was a, a founder. But really what brought me to what I do today at Form Ventures is that since then I um really saw um one that there was a gap in um advice when it came to go to a market specifically not so much product but go to market for founders right that are typically either technical or product leaders and uh, while there's a lot that's written out there about how to build the right product um, there isn't really as much advice on um, how do you acquire your first customers? How do you even figure out your initial go-to-market to ensure that you're building a real business? Um, so that's a lot of what I've done over the last um, 10 years, really um, working with, with um, founders between, um, I'd say, pre-seed and series B on that early customer acquisition. And, and I do it all of that as um, part of Forum as well. So we work with really early stage founders helping them get to where they need to get. Sorry to interrupt, but you just mentioned two words. They're not really acronyms, but there might be some people out there that you say like Series B, stuff like that. I know what it is, um, but many people out there that are listening might not know what that means. Can you kind of explain that a little bit? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So in uh, um, venture funding, um, we kind of, there's, there's, um, with the way things work is that investors will kind of look at where you're at in terms of certain milestones and um, based on, on those milestones, we'll write your check and there's different rounds. So the first of those rounds is called a seed round, which is typically um, where a founder will have an idea and an initial concept, maybe, an, maybe a, an MVP that they've built with some customer interest. And really they need that seed capital in order to build that product and acquire their first customers. And then it just kind of goes into series. So you've got a, a pre-seed round, a seed round, a series A, which is your first um, real institutional round, series B and, and so on. That's kind of what I was referring to. How many series does it be? Because I'm familiar with Series A, Series B, Series C, but one thing I don't even have clarity on: how many series are there? I mean, how have I mean, did they go down to double Z or what? <laughs> that that's a great question because for one, uh, what you might hear as well, what I haven't talked about is that sometimes um, companies will talk about a series and then plus. So you'll hear about C plus, A plus, which is another A round on top of their existing A round. So the the truth is, you'll I haven't really seen anything go past E or G in terms of series, uh, because fundamentally, um, once you're in and around there, you should really just be IPOing uh, for the most part or doing some type of exit. Uh, but the reality is, startups, especially in uh, the last, you know, five to twelve years of the bull run, have really been um, raising um, tons and tons around. So um, I, that's that's a funny question to me because the reality is. There's a ton of rounds that, that tend to happen. That's great to hear that it was funny to you. <laughs> but um, so one thing I want to get to with the funding is since we're on that topic right now, um, there's a lot of alternative funding platforms out there for for you know company startups that weren't there five years ago or maybe they were and i just didn't discover them like um what is it weave nester or something like that companies like that what, what's your hot take on those types of companies it's crowdfund just to be clear it's crowdfunding 
for like a series A, a series B, a series C funding? Yeah, there's there's multiple um, alternative sources of funding that are what I would call non-dilutive, right? Where you're not giving away um, equity crowdfunding. Um, is an alternative where you are actually typically giving away um, equity, but there is um, other uh, forms of funding like revenue-based financing, as an example, where um, companies have been given uh, capital based on just their revenue growth, as an example. What I always what I always start with is, um, look, not all companies are meant to be built to be venture scale to start with, right? Uh, because not not all markets um, are venture scale markets, so. Um, as, as a founder, what I would say is first think about the type of business you want to build and the type of scale you want to, you want to get to, um, you know, building a one, two, three, five million dollar, um, SaaS business. That's more of a lifestyle business that might not grow well above that number is fine. In which case, um, when you consider your sources of financing, maybe uh, non-dilutive or more crowdsource um, ways of financing are better options than venture capital, as an example, right? Um, so venture capital is not always the answer. Um, and we certainly uh, welcome, and I think everybody in, in the industry is really just there wanting to see as many entrepreneurs as possible, whatever flavor um, that looks like. And again, I don't think that it has to be a venture scale business. Right. No, that's great. I actually did the alternative investment thing for one of the series i think it was like series b funding or something like that and i believe it was with uh it was with we funder that's who it was and i went with uh legion m and i only threw in a hundred bucks but i was like okay you know they got some movies coming out that they're promoting let's see what happens and here it is two three years later and their valuation has gone from about 22 million 23 million when i first invested now they're close to 60 million so kind of view that like it was a you know it's a small investment but it was still i kind of feel like okay i invested in a company that's growing and who knows maybe in another thousand years i have something to give to my great 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 grandkids you know what i mean yeah and you know what uh what what i've found, what i find interesting about sources of financing as well is that the um over the last few years we've seen and that's changing and we can get into that because as you may have heard the market has taken a bit of a turn uh right um, but one of the things that wasn't the case as an example if you go back two three years ago there's a lot of emerging funds out there um that would be you know sub 50 million dollar funds or sub 10 million dollar fund um, that are investing in in companies and when you think about the type of return that you would need uh, with those funds it's very different than the type of that the type of returns that a hundred or a billion dollar fund would be and what that meant was founders just had more sources of capital available to them for from emerging managers and you, you heard a lot about syndicates as well um, that were uh, very popular over the last few years now unfortunately some of that has taken a bit of a, of, of a turn uh, but that being said um, the more uh, sources of financing out there including grants and 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 government-backed um, um, funding sources um, the better it is for entrepreneurship everywhere, I think. So how healthy is the startup community right now? How much of, you know, how, I don't know. When I think startups, I think really between 2010 to maybe 2015, 2017, I don't think much as a startup in 2023. I know they still exist, but I, I just kind of feel like the the real 
heartthrob of startups, you know, the like the companies we have today, Uber, things like that, came out of really that time period. How does now compare to back then? Are we just as healthy? Is it the same? Is it a different environment? I mean, what's your take and feeling? Yeah, so it is a very different environment. And I think not to get too Shakespearean here. Culture shifted, and that has shifted the the startup space majorly as well, too. Yeah, a lot, a lot of changes. So, um, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but I'll just maybe start by saying not to get too Shakespearean, but um, tale of two cities, right? It is the best of times and it is the worst of times. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, um, let me touch on maybe some of the chat. Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Let's touch on some of the some of the multiple challenges. So, at a high level, we've actually had something that we haven't really had in a while before, which is a twelve-year run of low interest rates. And with a twelve-year run of low interest rates, what happens is when capital is cheap, um, then um, one of the riskiest assets, um, which is startup investing is something that becomes um, a good option, right? When, when you think about it, if capital is cheap, then um, revenue can accrue there. What has happened since, um, you know, um, one, the pandemic, um, two, some of the supply chain challenges, um, three, um, some of the macroeconomic changes is that a lot of that has contributed to increasing um, really the, um, the the risk profile of those investments and I can get into the macroeconomics but I'm not I'm not going to go there but fundamentally what has changed is that um, investors or and LPS it started with LPS then it's gonna um, go with investors and we've seen some of the changes in the in the public market where it used to be that companies were trading at 100x revenue which Personally, I don't think was ever healthy, right? And now it's come down significantly. So you've got this trickle down effect of LPs having to reshuffle their portfolio um, with trickle downs to VCs that are actually having um, a little bit more of a hard time um, raising um, additional funding, but also deploying the existing capital. Because if you are, for example, uh, you know, $500 million fund and you've already deployed half of that in 2020 and 2021, you might need to mark that down by about 50 to 60% uh, when you think about it, right? Um, and what that means is we have now an environment where I think, um, you know, for 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 a couple of years, um, and I realize that I'm on air, but don't quote me on it, um, folks have been investing as though they're drunk in a way, right? I've, I've seen a lot of deals getting done at very, very expensive um, valuations. And now um, I think that there is a healthy kind of and some of that's due to the retail market as well, too. I mean, the retail market, and just for clarification for people that aren't the most financial experts out there, when you're talking retail market, we're talking people like me, people like you that are not professional investors. We're just buying stuff off, you know, Kickstarter to WeFunder to uh, you know, Robin Hood to whatever it has been. But I think that the retail market has had a, had an impact in that as well, too, as far as that drunk investing. Yeah, a lot of um, a lot when when you have uh, when there's a lot of free capital, and that's kind of why I started talking about interest rates right away, um, then there's a lot more um, capital that goes into things that would typically be risky, right? Um, and um, 
you know different different types of investments are available um, to to folks. But let me let me circle back on what I said earlier, which is the worst of time, the best of times as well. So um, on the one hand, you have this moment where um, it is much harder for founders to raise capital. It is much harder um, for companies to scale. Why? Because uh, when you think about what's going on and you've seen the layoffs, you see companies tightening up their belts, that means that they're buying less software, they're buying less things, right? So fundamentally, it's it's a very hard environment to be in. Now, um, history tells us, you're talking about Uber, you're talking about some of those companies earlier. When you actually look at uh, when those companies were founded, you'll find that a lot of those companies tend to be founded in really difficult times. You know, I can name Google, Microsoft, WeWork, um, Lyft. Well, I wouldn't consider WeWork a, a, a success story today. That's a good point, given given the recent the recent news out there. We should probably take them out of your list. Uh, they're unlisted as of now. Well, they they were successful at at a point, but yes, that's that's a good. Point. They were, but uh, still very quirky. Let's leave it at that. But um, but some of the but the rest of what you say, I mean, they were very successful, um, uh, you know, at one given point and well, for a couple of years and even with unorthodox leadership, all that crazy stuff, it is I mean, it worked for them. But in a crowded market, you've got to do what you can to stand out. That's why for me personally, and I, I tell people, they're like, well, how can you wear, you know, 30 different bracelets? Can you get any more in your arm? Well, it's like, because when I'm rocking a suit and I go to give a presentation on ERP software and I'm talking about, um, you know, financial stuff, like those bracelets, they're like, what the F is this? You know, like, they remember, hey, remember that quirky guy with the bracelets? I like him. He's going to take good care of us. And then we end up getting the sale because of that. And that's what I do to stand out. So it's not that much different than Adam Newman style in a way, although I probably have a little bit better self-control. Yeah, I, I, I can I can see that. That's that's a good perspective. Um, the, the 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 interesting thing and what I was what I meant earlier by the best of time is and um, this is a topic that I, I don't know whether this is um, a topic you want to talk about, but I'm not a hype um, person, but I do think that we're in the midst of a platform shift with uh, generative artificial intelligence and all the tooling that's there. Um, and fundamentally, whenever there's a platform shift, there's also a ton of opportunities for um, founders to build new companies. Well, I got to ask you right now, then. I mean, you just opened up the door to ChatGPT4, Bard, all those other half-baked pro programs that people are trying to roll out to catch up to ChatGPT4. But um, what do you think on the uh, the moderatum uh, that they're asking for as far as further development on AI uh, for six months to pause and wait? I am totally against that. I think it uh, it will stifle um, innovation. We have been historically, innovation has been stifled because of Apple, because of Microsoft, because of Google. So many times in the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I mean, even going back to NASA and the space days. I mean, most people don't realize this. First video phone call, I mean, happened like 60, 70 years ago. You know, they made their very first video phone call. Okay. And I forget exactly where it was. It wasn't long distance, but it was a video phone call. How long until we actually had that technology? And if you look, NASA was set up because of our 
industrial military complex, as people like to say, uh, to, in a way that did not allow that that technology to advance to where we have SpaceX like we do today with Elon Musk to where we were stuck using one-time non-reusable rockets. We could have had that stuff 20, 30, 40 years ago and be so much more advanced. So to me, that's where I am totally against stopping any type of development because I believe that large corporations have used their powers over the past 60, 70 years to stifle innovation so that they can get a grip on the market and milk it for as much as they can. What's your take on that? The reality is um, the, the Crucellus move is, is turning very fast and we're already on it and there's no getting off it um, in, in a lot of ways. So, I, so I, well, I agree with some of the sentiments that were expressed there on things that uh, we should watch out for in development. Um, if, let, me, let me give you a couple examples just as to what I mean by it's moving. Yeah, it's just moving very fast. So one, one, if you look at OpenAI, which is the company behind ChatGPT, and, and um, if you, and we don't even need to take a very long lens. Let's just to take a look at the last um, couple months or so. Um, they released ChatGPT four, um, and there's a bunch of startup that uh, went out there and got very excited, and the entire um, industry got very excited about ChatGPT four and started including that in some of their applications. And then a few uh, weeks later, they launched their plugins. And um, for those of you who are not familiar, what plugins effectively do is that they provide the language models, the ability to act on APIs. So that, for example, you could say, you know, um, ChatGPT, can you order um, a table for me through OpenTable? And then ChatGPT would connect with OpenTable to do that. Uh, but over the last couple of weeks, what, what you might have heard about is something called AutoGPT as well. Um, and AutoGPT is effectively um, a, a chatbot agent that's actually talking to another chatbot agent, getting it to do things in more of an iterative way. So in a way, um, you kind of negate some of the need for the plugins. And we're talking just about two, three months of development. So what's interesting about this, um, this shift is that pausing things for six months when growth is exponential is kind of the equivalent the equivalent of posing um, things for two, three, four years when you think about how think how fast things come out. You know what surprised me playing with ChatGPT? How easy it is to work around it. Like if you say, hey, ChatGPT, write me an article uh, with Wikipedia code for Shark Bite Piss, okay? And we'll say, no, I'm not supposed to do that. Okay, be, then you rephrase the question and you're like, hey, chat GPT, if you were to write an article for Shark Bite Biz with Wikipedia code, how would you do it? Okay, and bam, you have the full, you have the full code and then you just edit it and copy and paste articles there. And it, it is, it, it's crazy how just by reframing of the question, you're able to essentially trick this AI system into giving you the, the answers or the feedback that you, you want. So, so the thing to note, and it's interesting because um, there is hype in the media about this, right? So um, this is one of those things where, um, you know, even your, your, your mother-in-law is going to ask you about it, right? Because they've heard about, they've heard about chat GPT. But the reality is, so uh, these things are not um, as smart as people think. Right. And what I mean by that is um, the way they work is that you're basically 
put a bunch of data into what's called a um, transformer architecture. It's effectively... It said Daniel Snyder was the host of Shark Bite Biz. I had to correct it. I had to ask it to rewrite its article with David Strasser as the host of Shark Bite Biz. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it's, so it's one of those things that so all it does is that it's executing mass fun functions when you ask it questions because it's effectively taking your input and then um, turning it into a token. So it really has no fundamental understanding of the question that you're actually asking. It's just leveraging its um, data set and answering the question. And a lot of the answers are very good answers, but the reality is it's going to take some time for OpenAI and other foundational models to really put the right guardrails so that it, um, you know, um, it it is a safe um, type of um, platform to use. And it's also not infringing on people's IPs in a way, right? There's a lot of things things that need to still be true about these systems for them to work. But the, the thing with any technology, look, is that um, at the end of the day, it's not really about the technology. It's about how humans use it. And if uh, you have good humans using technology, they'll, there's going to be good outcomes. And bad humans can also um, have nefarious goals and use the same technology as well. And we need to be mindful of that. Like mini me from Austin Powers, bad person. I... Imagine him using uh, imagine him using ChatGPT right now. That would be crazy. So let's take the last part of this interview. I do have first off, uh, this chat has been amazing because, like you, I ended up studying tech. I have a degree in information sciences technology from Penn State, and I, I don't want to be a developer. I wanted to be in the business side of things, sales, and that's why I'm in ERP with Sador. That's why I'm in sales, biz dev. But I understand the tech at a pretty deep level. Um, so let's talk about if you have a startup out there or you're starting a startup, okay? Because this is your specialty. So all the good stuff we just talked about, which was amazing, was a bonus. That was like just us getting our tech jives off. Now let's talk about the stuff that you're really an expert about. Your, your startup, how do you get your first customer? That is so hard for so many businesses, especially you have no case studies, no references, you have nothing. I, I actually, if you don't mind, I'll take I'll, I'll take a couple steps back before that because I think um, there's there's a lot of things that when you think about um, how you kind of build a company um, that need to be true before when you think about um, getting your first customers. Here's what I mean by that: when I think when I think about where uh, most companies make some of these early mistakes. Um, the first mistakes that's made is actually, um, so suppose you are, as a founder, trying to build a venture-scale business, right? Which is kind of the domain of it. Um, a lot of the times, what I see is founders will come up with um, an idea of a solution that's there to solve a specific pain point, right? Uh, whatever the pain point might be, right? It might be around collaboration. It might be um, that you're in a construction space and think folks are still using spreadsheets to manage frosters, you name it. Oh, I'm telling you, they are. I, I get those as leads every single day. You know, and they end up buying ERP and use our project management. But uh, you know what? There's here, I, quick sidestep. Sorry. Believe it or not, there are $500 million businesses, okay? $500 million a year revenue businesses still using QuickBooks as their accounting platform and spreadsheets and have disparate systems. And it like, 
they're doing double, triple, and it's like you're a five hundred million dollar a year revenue business. How the heck do you operate? Like, I don't get it. That is insane how they grew that big. I'll, I'll do you one better, and I'm not going to name names there, but um, let's just say that this is one of the ten, one, one of the ten biggest tech companies out there. Um, I know somebody who works there who tells me that for one of their major operations, it's basically run on spreadsheets. Um, it still happens, right? But let me let me let me go back to um, kind of step one, which is you've got an idea of, of uh, you've identified a pain point that you want to solve. Here's kind of the step that typically misses there is that folks fail to think about how many other people actually would actually have this pain point. And what I mean by that is if you're building a venture scale business, you have to not only identify a pain point, but you have to make sure that there's enough people that experiences pain point to justify a venture scale outcome, right? And the way you do that is that you come up with um, hypothesis, and this is where my technical background comes to play. Um, you think about uh, the pain point you're solving, then you've got ideas of who your ideal customers might be, and you've got a you've got one, two, three hypothesis of those um, of those. You're essentially saying market market research, right? You need to know the market and know the market potential. Yeah, think about think about who that person think about who that potential customer is, what their challenges are, what the company looks like, the size, and really detail it out in such a way that you've got an idea of what your ideal customer profile, it's called ICP, um, looks like. And once you do that, there's a second step of really going out and validating that um, that pay point actually exists. So that's kind of step two. And I'm not even talking about acquiring customers yet. I'm actually just talking about get out of the building. Go and talk to some real humans about their day-to-day -day and whether or not these challenges that you're trying to solve actually exist and are actually urgent enough to want to actually buy a solution to solve that. Just to clarify, real humans, real humans, not the band ICP, right? No insane uh, clown posse. We're just real humans, ideal customer profiles. That's who you want to talk to. Humans, people that are actually going to be using your product because that's the reality, right? Um, and there's a tendency. So, and, and I know I have that tendency too. I'm technical. So there's a tendency to want to just build a product and see how people feel feel about it. But the reality is there's a lot that you can do without writing a single line of code. And I'm not even talking about code yet. I'm talking about interviewing customers to really understand, um, to really kind of crystallize and 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 um and and get to your own conclusion that this pain point is actually real and that if you were to solve it, it would benefit them in in intangible, measurable ways. Once you do that, there's a second step of now going, okay, so I've had conversation with these three groups of customers that I thought would be ideal for me. Um, based on my um, discussions with them and my conversations with them, I think uh, I think the ideal ones are actually group one, right? Um, then you go to group one and you think, okay, let's build for group one. What um, features and what, what, what do features look like? And you're really kind of building things in such a way that by the time you get to um, that conversation where you're trying to acquire customers, and this is kind of one of my um, tactics that I would provide with founders is that half the time they think that what you need to do early stage is sell um, to those customers. And I know this is, sounds, this is something that comes weird, uh, that's going to sound weird coming from a sales leader. You don't necessarily, um, the motion is less a less of a um, direct sales motion as it is a motion where you've identified innovators and you're effectively trying to um, sell them on 
partnering with you to build the, the product alongside you, right? And it's a very different conversation. So what would what would look like? Here's my product. Here's some of the. If you have these pain points, um, then I've got a solution for you. Here's the reality. People don't actually. The the biggest misconception in SaaS, I think, is that customers have a pain point and you have a solution, and therefore they'll buy it from you. The customer is not thinking about that. The customer, if it is a real pain point, has a way in which they're addressing it that's a workaround. And you have to convince them from changing behavior, from how they're currently doing things, to a new way of doing things. And what that means is your initial early customers should really be the type of people that are actually open to changing their behavior because they're experiencing the pain as high as they do. So that's when you hear the terms early adopters, innovators, but fundamentally that motion should be more of a motion where you say, hey, um, I've had some great feedback from you in our past conversation about this pain point and about the product. Um, I think we might be a great fit for you guys. Um, we're launching our product um, in Q1 of next year. And between now and then, we're going to be signing up a few launch partners. So not as the language that I'm using is not a customer type language, but a partner type language. Um, is this something that you'd be open to? And uh, when, you, when you approach things that way, it's a very different type of conversation than just kind of going in and saying, do you have budget? Who would need to buy this stuff, right? Because fundamentally, you now have a champion. Yeah. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt you. So I understand the point of getting the champion, and we'll continue that in one second. But are you charging them or are you giving it to them because you need that champion while you build it out to help you actually get more sales? So I've got um, so my take on that, and it, it depends on the product, right? Like if you if you're building, for example, a product. So at my former company at Hootsuite was a premium product, as folks know. So you give away the product for free, but it really just acts as kind of a funnel. Well, there's that too. Right, I think they they killed off the um, the free version now, uh, but and they killed off the fifteen dollars a month version. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. I was upset when I was signing up for it with how much it cost me because I'm on all social media platforms. I have the personal and the podcast, and it's like holy, I'm going to be spending this much for Hootsuite nowadays. And it actually sent me looking for alternatives, but Hootsuite was the the first one i mean really out there doing that i feel and you know what you built with them was an amazing product and now there's about 50 different competitors that do it yeah all i would say is i mean not to uh dive too much into that but api access costs something these days i mean you've heard twitter and those changes there so sometimes you have to do what you have to do as a company uh but um the um so to, so to your question, I guess the, the piece there is um, it's um, what, what I actually think very strongly is that if you, in fact, identify the right customers that are experiencing that, that have that hair and fire urgency problem, you really should be charging them to solve for that pain point, right? And um, this this is something that um, I see founders make the mistake of quite a bit is that they'll go in and um, just go for logos because they're interesting logos and give them the product for free. But here's the reality. Logo. I, I thought you meant the word low and go, not logo, meaning brand, 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 brand. Okay, so you're talking about just getting the logo as far as the brand name. We didn't get into this, but I'm a French native speaker, so sometimes the words come out a little weird. I, I say logos, yeah, yeah, I say logos uh, all the time, but what I heard it, uh, 
probably a good time to tell everybody, you know, you are, you know, you said French Canadian, you're probably our first Canadian guest in over a year and you're coming to us from Vancouver. So you might see some, uh, you know, some lags and pixelation and some talking over each other. Cause there is a little bit of latency. We're far away apart from each other, but, um, he, you know, uh, Boca, you're doing an amazing job. You're full of intelligence. Keep going, my friend. I haven't said hey a boat yet, so we're good. Uh, just to close out the topic of the question that you asked me, I think um, as much as possible, you should really have launch partners be paid launch partners. So it can be a paid pilot, it could be anything, but the reality is having um, initial partners that have skin in the game um, and that actually truly experience the problem will just actually help you build the right product. Um, so my... Um, my inclination is always try to charge them, and in in and in, in most cases, those are the folks that will help you build the right product. That has been amazing. So I guess to wrap up, let me ask: uh, How can people find you online? How can they find out more about your your company? And you know, tell us everything there is to know about Bocardia online so people can digitally remember i'm staying digitally so if you get a physical stock or not us digitally stock you you're not you don't hold responsibility for that the um so i've got um so i um have been um an operator i've been a founder and i'm now an investor and a lot of what we do as farm is really help founders with our experience as operators and as founders um so we're, we're going to write 120 checks this year um, we um, focus on pre-seed and seed um, stage companies for the most part. So we've got an accelerator program, we've got um, a seed fund, and we've got a studio. What I would say is um, if you're listening to this and you are either a founder or you know a founder that's very early stage, that's looking for help when it comes to go-to-market fundraising and really understanding the initial kind of zero-to-one um, phase, reach out, um, go to forumvc.com um, and you should see me there um, and, and along with my information. I'm also um, on LinkedIn and my name is pretty short. So it's Bocar, B-O-C-A-R, um, D-I-A-D-I-A. Um, and there isn't a lot of fuss on LinkedIn. So you'll find me very quickly from Forum Ventures. And feel free to reach out there. I'm, I'm usually pretty responsive on LinkedIn as well. Amazing. See, people, I told you venture capitalists are not evil. You know, <laughs> pretty great. Some people, of us actually. aren't. Some of yeah, us some, aren't. Some of you aren't. Some of you aren't. But um, <laughs> hey, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your intelligence. You were amazing. And uh, as always, everybody out there, we are going to have the link down below in the description. Bokar, very grateful for you coming on, my friend. David, thanks for having me. Anytime also. Okay, <laughs> cheers. Everyone, bye. That was an incredible chat with Bokar, right? First, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked those wervid fuzzies, please do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out because you know Shark Bite Biz is one of the greatest kept secrets in the world of small business, please do me a favor, share us out to your friends, your family, your colleagues, anywhere that you dwell on the interweb. Every week we work on bringing you some of the best, biggest, and brightest minds in the world of business for personal, professional, and business growth. The three G's, as I call them. They're the pillars of this show. And the only way we can grow at this point is if you keep 
commenting, liking, uh, subscribing, and sharing the video out on YouTube, or even just sharing the audio version out wherever you're watching, you know, it comes out to you helping us grow. Anyways, let's get back to the real rock star of this interview, uh, Mr. Bocardia. Overall, this was a great interview. I remember Hootsuite when it first came out, and it was brand new, and he really didn't have a need for it. It was like, what, 10, 15 bucks a month, something like that. Now you try to get it, it's like 35, 50, 60. I mean, it's crazy pricing, especially because now that social media is so integral to our lives you do need something like that a tool that it ties to all your accounts all your brands and can force feed out posts so that way you don't have to do them all one by one um we were checking it out for this show and it was just like yeah unfortunately where we're at financially can't afford that right now but eventually maybe i would like to get it make our lives so much easier but I bring that all up because it kind of brings up the experience of Bokar and where he fits in into tech and tech startup with the experience at Hootsuite. It's one of the things that makes him more bona fide credentials. So when he is talking about startups and talking about a GTM or go to market plan for the startups, you know that this guy has that experience and he's done it over and over and over again. Ultimately, this interview was really fun to have, and we discussed a diverse area of topics with sales, with go-to-market, with startups, and most importantly, I got to ask him the question point blank, are venture capitalists evil? Because that's one of the talking points out there against VC, and we got to hear his opinion on that. But ultimately, my favorite part of it all was how we got some sales tips for early companies just trying to grow. Awesome stuff, Bokar. Thanks for coming on and sharing how you are helping companies grow from nothing to huge organizations. That is awesome for me. Please check out his company, Forum Ventures, down below. In fact, we have one of his counterparts uh, from Forum Ventures coming on next season to kind of give us a different view on a lot of these same topics. So question of the day after hearing the interview, did your opinion on venture capitalists change? Yeah, your day. Love to hear your feedback. Please leave a comment down below on YouTube or if you're watching, it'll be the question of the day on Spotify. Do you want to be on the show? Interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, Spotify, Patreon, wherever, you know, $3 a month, you can become a baby shark and help this channel get to the next level. And lastly, again, we've got to shoot out a huge thanks to the sponsor of this episode, Sador, S-E-I-D-O-R. They are amazing. If you're a small business from mom and pop, the large enterprise, they have a solution for you because they're an SAP platinum partner and they'll help get your business to the next level. You all know this by now, but I'll say it once again. I'm David Strasser. This is Sharp pipe biz we'll see you all next episode cheers you just experienced shark bite biz with david strausser please like comment and subscribe to the show to help us spread the word about personal professional and business growth 
Want to be on the show? Send an email to interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. A special shout out to our sponsor, SAP Platinum Partner, Sador. Get off QuickBooks and move your business to the next level. Reach out for more info. Thanks for listening and see you next time.